The presenting sponsor of EcoCheck with the IDM is RPG Research. RPG Research is a volunteer-run, nonprofit 501c3 research and human services charitable organization providing a public research repository and studies the effects of all role-playing game formats, accessibility, and inclusiveness considerations for role-playing gamers, and the potential for RPGs to help various populations achieve their educational, recreational, or therapeutic goals. The founder of RPG Research is Hawk Robinson, and he has been wonderfully supportive of my creative efforts over the years, and previously appeared as a guest on EgoCheck back in January 2017 on Episode 7. So go back in time and check out our conversation about all the great work he's doing. Donations to RPG Research directly support research and community programs to help people improve lives. And more information for these programs can be found at rpgresearch.com slash donate. And before we get started today, I wanted to pass along another note that Limitless Adventures and I are still selling no assembly required for $5. And every penny of that $5 goes to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. The book is a PDF of 10 highly detailed uh, monster characters that are available for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. It has wonderful art, a lot of backstory, and will be a great resource for your game. And again, every penny of that $5 goes to American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You can find No Assembly Required available for purchase through Limitless Adventures. And to find that, that is limitless-adventures.com backslash no-assembly-required. And you could also check out limitlessadventures.com for a lot of other great 5th edition materials. And if you scroll down through the page, you'll see the no assembly required icon to click on it for more information and the availability of the PDF for $5. So check that out and you're supporting a great cause. Now on to the show. Welcome to another episode of Ego Check with the It DM. I'm your host, Michael Mallon, and with me this week is Kevin Hobdesat. I'm really excited to talk with him about esports and some other topics. I first became exposed to Kevin through the Well Met podcast, being a Hearthstone player several years ago. Uh, he was one of the hosts on there, but he's been active in this esports landscape for quite some time, uh, first as a business consultant, operations manager a freelance journalist for four years, writing articles for outlets such as Bleacher Report, Vice, IGN, some other sites. Most recently was an associate editor with Blizzard Entertainment, which given that they do Heroes of the Storm and Overwatch and Hearthstone, a lot of exciting things to possibly talk about there. And Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. I'm really excited to spend some time with you and talk all things esports. It's been a long time since I've done a podcast. Uh, so this is a, a first for me in at this point, almost two years. So definitely looking forward to uh, an interesting conversation tonight. Yeah, and it is. It's strange because I used to listen to you every week on the Hearthstone podcast, uh, which I really enjoyed. And that was when I was really kind of deep into the game trying to Reach for a Legend, and eventually got there, which uh, was last August, uh, about a year and a half ago. But I really enjoyed your work on that show, and then it seemed like that kind of led to some other opportunities for you. But for folks who maybe haven't heard you before, and I wonder if you just give them a little synopsis of how you got involved in the gaming industry and what that's been like over the last 
you know, five years or so. Yeah, definitely. Competitive gaming is a fascinating place, and I think everybody's path is a little different. Uh, so the, the tail end for me, obviously, you spoke to the fact that I've uh, most recently been with Blizzard Entertainment for a couple of years. Prior to that, I was working as a uh, director of marketing for an esports consulting agency. Uh, during that time, I helped with projects like rebranding Lenovo Gaming to Legion by Lenovo, launching the Rocket League Championship Series, uh, esports sponsorships with NZXT, and a handful of other projects. Uh, but before that, what really got me into this space in a professional capacity was I was full-time working as a freelance gaming and esports journalist. Uh, I started out just as like a, a way to kill some time and for fun. I had been following high-end competitive gaming scenes across a variety of genres for years. And in 2013, I was approached by an editor for uh, an esports organization who said, We've got some, you know, openings on our team. Interesting opportunity if you want to maybe write something about one of these games that you follow. And I just started doing it for free uh, when I first started. And I will I will 100 percent say I do not recommend that. I don't recommend <laughs> working for free. But it was at don't the time it was like exposure. A, right. But at the time it was like a hobby opportunity. It was an outlet for some creativity. So I just kind of went for it. Okay. Uh, and honestly, the, just the, the snowball effect of write one interesting article, get approached by somebody else, write another interesting article that I'm being asked to do, you know, a guest episode on a podcast. Then I'm hosting my own podcasts. Then I'm speaking at panels and events and conferences. And then I'm in the industry and I'm a director of marketing. And then I'm working for one of the biggest game companies on earth. Like it just kind of felt like it happened honestly in retrospect really quickly everything just kind of one thing flowed to the other and it was one big step forward after another day in day out and now i'm here that's amazing and one of the things that i as an outsider just looking at this landscape of, of esports i mean i'll date myself i grew up my idea of esports was going to the local arcade to pay $5 to enter a tournament for Street Fighter, Street Fighter 2, or Mortal Kombat, or something like that. And now it's just exploded. Obviously, that's like 30-plus years ago. So now you have these games. These games seem to attract uh, really high-level talent. There's teams out there. I don't even know where to start. So for someone who's a bit of a newbie in this field, how do you, how would you describe this esports realm for folks who are maybe gamers and grew up playing games, but really have not dabbled in the competitive scene as much as you have in recent years? That's a, that's a fair question. I think for most people, really where esports comes from is analogous to any other skill or ability. Um, let's say that you were, I don't know, really good at cross-stitch and you just really loved okay. cross-stitching. And you did that in your own time and you cross-stitched and some of your friends cross-stitched, but your stuff was better and you finished it faster. Uh, over enough time, uh, amongst your group of friends, you might go, cool, I'm the best at cross-stitch. And then one day you happen to be at the mall and you see that there's a, a contest and the person who can make the most interesting cross-stitch against this set of criteria wins – a $5,000 shopping spree, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, this is all very much for sake of example, but like that's where this all came from. If you've got a skill, if you've got a talent, if you are able to do something and you're good at something, there's always going to be people who want to see who's the best at that thing. And that's true of any creative, expressive outlet. It's true of music and art and dancing and 
playing video games is not so far removed from that. The difference is, is that as it evolved, people who were good at video games, right? If I'm the best of my friends at Tetris, as we start to compete and see who's better amongst a bunch of other groups of people, right? It, within a state or within a country, the long tail of that is that eventually to make it interesting, you need to see who can be the best over a long period of time. And you get things that look more like traditional sports in terms of leagues and tournament structure and trophies and an ongoing sort of maintained ecosystem. Uh, and the reason that really works today is because the games are just so much more complex, right? If you go back and look at something like watching two chess grandmasters play, right? At the highest level of play, what, what you're waiting for is one of them to make a mistake. You're waiting for someone to screw up because it's a solved game and everybody knows how to play it at the highest level. There's no room for like creativity or improvement over time. But in a sport, that's not true. People get stronger and faster and smarter and new ideas come to light. And in video games, even with the fixed parameters, right, even if the character jumps the same height this year as they do next year, players will learn how to use that skill set differently or the player playing the game will get faster, smarter, have a better reaction, figure out some way to do something with it that someone has never figured out before. There are there are games that are being played now where new strategies and new tricks are being discovered 20 years later, right? You may know something about Street Fighter 2, to your point from earlier, but someone might be able to teach you something you don't know about Street Fighter 2 that was only discovered this year. Sure. And I, that's one of the interesting things that I've noted, and even in recent weeks, so the whole esports scene seems quite intangible to me where things are shifting around and the players don't have much control over that, which seems very scary. So for example, I've played Hearthstone over the last two, three years. They go through different card nerfs. Uh, I played Overwatch in the past and this is going back probably a year and a half, but there was like so many characters is overwhelming. I don't have that much time. I had more or less a newborn at the time. I was like, okay, let me try to learn one character. So I learned how to play Roadhog. I was like, all right, he seems to be just kind of this goofy tank like character. Let me hook people and shoot them in the face. That sounds fun. So I learned how to play that character. And then a few weeks or months later, they told, they, well, totally, they changed some of his abilities and he was no longer as effective. So I was like, oh, well that changes the way I was, that changes my relationship with this game. And I was just thinking, like, that can happen to these people who are super competitive on teams and organized leagues, where they're devoting countless hours and really a way of life to mastering a certain game, and really without that much warning and no control over it, the, ind- the intellectual property of the game itself changes. And that whole relationship, I mean, it's happened recently with Fortnite, with, uh, I think, Infinity Blade, uh, Hearthstone just came out and just had a whole s- slew of nerfs for uh, some cards that people were pretty excited about, but at the same time, it just, it happened quick. I wonder being maybe on the other side of it or just following this industry for a while, what are your thoughts on that relationship between the players and the games themselves where the games are just constantly changing now? It's tough. And I think everybody has uh, a different perspective on this. I don't think there's a right answer. Mm -hmm. If you are a player, fundamentally you want as little change as possible because like most other things, you know, to point back to the example of, you know, uh, your mastery of Street Fighter 2, the longer that game goes without changing, the more mastery will exist because people will get better at something that they can refine and continue to practice. But if you change the game, 
you, you maybe lose a little of that mastery in the short term, but the change might be so that there's more room for people to get better. Um, this happened a lot with uh, strategy games because strategy games fundamentally needed this really razor tight balance to ensure that every player was winning or losing based on their strategy, right? Their ability to think and act quickly and utilize the the little intricacies of the relationships between different units, what does more damage to what. There's so much nuance and complexity, but if a strategy emerges that is, you know, fundamentally very difficult to counter, now you're put in this position where you, as the person making the game, you have to go, okay, do we just say, cool, that's the natural order of things, and everyone's just going to play that particular race, class, character, and, and that's okay? Or do we want there to be uh, more variety? And I think that's that's really what it comes down to, is you you can go back and you can find really great examples of games that are done, right? Before, before online updates existed, you would buy a game for your Nintendo 64, and it's just finished, right? That's the game. It's the way it's right. going to exist forever. And there would be characters that were better in a given game, and people just played those characters, and that's okay. Like, if the competitive scene of a game gravitates to a specific set of characters, it's because they're better, and that's the highest level of play. I mean, that's what that's what people want. They want to see the highest level of play. But as a game developer on a game that is current, and you want to make it seem fresh and interesting and fair for a longer period of time into the future, there's a constant tension there of, you know, do we just acknowledge that, yeah, there are 10 classes in our game, but only three of them are seeing play, or do we try to make the game more diverse, more interesting? And, and some of that true, truthfully at this point, I think has more to do with the non-competitive scenes. Mm -hmm. Like if you're a, a good player of a game, but you're not a pro, you might get bored. Uh, if, you know, again, there's 10 classes in a game and only three of them see play, maybe the one you want to play isn't good, so you can't compete, so you say, ah, you know what, I'm done with this game. That's bad for the game, which by extension is bad for its competitive scene. So it, there is a there is a sort of a never-ending tension there, and I think game developers will continue to try and make their games as tight an experience as possible, as fair and balanced as possible, but you as the player want as little change as possible. You want time to understand, develop mastery. There's there's no way to have both of those things in tandem, so you're just going to see this conversation continue forever. <laughs> right. And I think growing up with systems like Atari, Nintendo, Sega Genesis, when you bought a game, that, that was the game. It was this tangible product that you could hold, and it wasn't going to change. It wasn't going to be updated. And I think I still have that foundation for what a game is or maybe even should be. And I think I it started to break out of that when I got Overwatch because I just realized this game is not – it's a service. Like I, I didn't play World of Warcraft. I realized I kind of missed that out on that, probably for a good thing. I would have lost a lot of time to that back in the day. I tried to get into it recently, and it was just – very much a grind. I couldn't focus. Um, and again, time is a factor. But I just, it seems like every game now is is never complete. Or most, a lot of the high-profile games have these components that are always changing. There's the release of the game, then, you know, stay tuned for, you know, downloadable content that's going to be coming within the next 6 to 12 months. Or there's going to be updates, or this patch is going to go live, and we're going to introduce new characters, new skins, new content. And it's almost like you have to choose 
I don't know how people balance all these games where you almost have to pledge allegiance to one or two of them rather than like, oh, I played Overwatch and I beat it and I'm done, so now I'm going to move on to this other game. It seems like that's less of a thing now. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, so there's there's two there's two things happening there, right? Uh, I think games as entertainment are fundamentally different from other forms of entertainment. Like if you buy a song or a movie, and and let's be clear, our relationship with those forms of entertainment has also shifted dramatically oh, in the absolutely, last yeah. whatever fifteen years, right? I have a Netflix subscription. I don't buy Blu-rays. I don't buy DVDs. I don't buy VHSs. Like the world is a different place now. Uh, but with games, we've always sort of had the understanding that a, a game is not a a concrete thing. The way that you played Monopoly is probably different from the way that I played Monopoly because people came up with their own rules and their own little kind of nuances to make the game work for them or their family or their friends. House rules have always been a thing. People have come up with their own cards or tweaked things in games to make them feel better. And, and that's just kind of how we've always related to games as a form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. So I look at it and think there are pros and cons to that, um, particularly with modern games as a service where a game can go away. Right. Like no one can ever take, I don't know, the original Star Wars away from me. I own it. It's mine. I will always have it. I can always watch it. But I can never go back and play an old version of Overwatch because that's not an option. That's not something anyone can do. And I think everybody has sort of this weird concept that that's something that, you know, down the road, we would love to know what were games like in the year 2012. And (laughs) without a lot of work on the part of a whole bunch of different developers, you're just never going to know. We're going to have this lost era of the first generations of games that went through balance changes or content updates or engine restructuring that now you can just never see again. And that, that is something that I think we're going to wrestle with culturally the same way that, you know, I I don't know, like when, when public records really started to shift from print to digital back in like the seventies, there's, there's less data on that window of time than there is on like the 1700s. Cause there's just this weird problem of we didn't capture everything the way that we used to. And we're going through that. We're living through that with games as a service. So how that translates into a player experience, how that translates into what you do to stay current on a game, I think ultimately is a question of like personal preference. I know a lot of people who, gravitate between genres of games. I know a lot of people who gravitate between individual games in a genre that they want to be competitive in looking for sort of the best fit for their skill set or preference or, or what, what they're able to be most successful at as games continue to evolve. That's a choice that everyone makes. And I think fundamentally we're at a point with games as a, as a part of culture where because they're so acceptable, because everybody games, right? My mom games, your mom games, everybody games. That's something that makes it a whole lot easier for people to say, yeah, I do this thing with my leisure time. And dedicating more of your leisure time to something is not inherently a bad thing. And then the people who want to get good, the people who want to be competitive, the people who want to master that thing will spend more time on it. And they'll naturally gravitate towards one. If you were a I don't know, a person who really loved being outdoors and you spent time hiking and kayaking and snowshoeing and skiing. 
at some point you might go, cool, I, I enjoy all these things, but I want to get better at one of them and really double down on, okay, I want to take my kayak and I want to go down whitewater rapids. That's not something I've done before, mm-hmm. but you're going to have to devote more time and more energy to getting stronger and smarter and, and taking that experience seriously. And that will naturally come at a cost of spending time on those other hobby things. It's it's a it's a relationship that people are choosing with games. And I think it's probably for better or for worse. It's the way that uh, having predominantly games that are multiplayer and competitive in the industry these days, it, that's a byproduct of the direction that it's headed. Nobody has that relationship with a single player game. If you buy a copy of, you know, Red Dead Redemption 2 to play on your PlayStation at home there's not like a, a huge thriving community of people competing to be the best at that because it's not a head to head experience. And that, that is a, a different form of entertainment fundamentally, right? That's, that's the difference between I want to play football and I go leisurely enjoy playing golf for myself. Right. And so for people who are interested in the, the competitive aspects of these games, how do people get into that? What, how have you seen that develop over time where it's become a little bit more structured, although it does seem chaotic, just following some of the news, players leaving teams, joining teams. Like, I don't have a sense, I think, of sports like hockey or football where you have positions and certain players on the team are good at specific types of games or maybe even a certain character in a type of game. Um how are these teams coming together? Where are the players coming from? Like, what have you seen in terms of trends in that direction? I don't, I don't think it's actually as different from like a traditional sport as you might think. Okay. If you took somebody who knew absolutely nothing about hockey, right? And they don't know what a rink is. They don't know what a puck is. They've never heard of the, you know, the Canucks or the, uh, and avalanche. Sh- shame right? on them. Totally. That's, that's their problem. They should fix that. But like being, being serious, it's, it's super difficult to start from nothing and get into something like that. If you've never even heard of hockey, how do you start from zero? How do you learn about the sport? How do you learn about the teams? How do you learn about the players? Then it starts to change as soon as you think you've even got a vague sense of it. Uh, that, that is the sport experience. And I think what it comes down to is personal interest and, Watching people play video games at a super high level is fascinating, and it you can show a, a really tremendous esports athlete to just about anybody and show them what it takes, the hours of training, the weeks of their lives that they give up in boot camps in Korea or living in team houses, just playing a game eight hours a day where they've got personal trainers and chefs and they've got to maintain a rigorous physical health schedule to optimize their their mental and physical prowess to play a game. Like it sounds insane, but it's, it's not that different from what you would see somebody trying to prep for a training camp for NFL tryouts. Like it's not, it's not fundamentally a really different thing. So I think what it comes down to is if, if a person is a player of a given video game, that tends to be the the gateway. Uh, I got super hooked into competitive real-time strategy games. That was my sort of first exposure to esports as a concept. We didn't even call it esports back then, but I, I enjoyed the game. I enjoyed playing the game. I was good, relatively good at the game. And then 
I got to see people who were way better than me. And, and this is around the, the birth of the concept of live streaming, right? Like we had online videos back in 2004 and five, but it wasn't until 2010, 2011 that you could watch someone play a game or do something on the internet in real time. That's, that's an advent of the last less than 10 years. Sure. Yeah. That was, that was the corner that we had to turn. And then it became very easy for you to say, cool, I played this game. I like it. I want to see someone play it better than I can. And that, that's the, it's the esport experience. It's the Twitch streaming experience. It's just, I want to see somebody who has a deeper understanding of a higher mechanical skill ceiling than I do, do something with this game. Uh, where that breaks down right now, where, where esports has kind of hit its current limitations is yeah. it's very difficult to grow the audience beyond people who understand the game. Okay. If you sit somebody down to watch pro overwatch, right? Uh, you know how Roadhog works. You know how Overwatch works. You can kind of follow what's happening, mostly. <laughs> if you've never played Overwatch or you introduce that to someone who doesn't understand the game, it's just lights and colors and sounds. You may as well be looking at uh, like someone trying to play a casino game or uh, a crazy just spectacle on a stage. It doesn't mean anything. You have no context. You can't interpret what you're seeing. And that's where traditional sports have the advantage right now that it's very easy to explain them. If you if you sit somebody down to watch a, a hockey game or a football game, the core of put puck in net, get ball across line, like that's it. That's all you need to know to watch it and begin to see what's happening. Uh, that There's a lot more to any given video game than that, even when at their core it's kill other player. Like there's way too many other variables for that to be a useful construct. So expanding the audience beyond people who are themselves passionate about a particular video game is where I think the the next challenge will come from. So if, if you are a listener and you don't currently play a game, but you want to follow an eSport, uh, the best advice I can give you is try the game because I think that's the fastest way to get uh, mm-hmm. a functional understanding of what it is you're actually watching. Sure. And that you wrote an article for Vice a couple of years ago and kind of talking about some of the growing pains or some of the things that esports needed to do to advance or hit another gear. And it, there's been some other articles written lately about, is there a, is there a bubble that's about to burst with esports? There's a lot of investors coming in like sponsorships. And I think you hit on this of like, well, who's actually watching? Like where is the revenue coming from for these, for this esports industry? And maybe in your own words, what do you think is working well for esports overall in that landscape? And what do you think are some of the challenges that they, that the whole scene has? So it, it's funny that you ask this question because, uh, I will, I will spoil this on the show. I'm actually working on a story about that right now. Okay. Uh, one of my editors from before I went to blizzard reached out to me about basically this exact subject. So breaking news, think, breaking news. I think, I think this is something that fundamentally all, Again, all entertainment wrestles with this, right? If you are trying to market uh, a new band or promote a new movie, it's not super difficult to get uh, a comic book fan excited about a Spider-Man movie. But how do you get someone who's never read a comic book excited about a Spider-Man movie? How do you grow your audience beyond the people who it organically reaches, right? That's that's a huge challenge for anything that's a challenge for people who want to sell cereal like how do i get somebody who doesn't eat cereal to try cereal right <laughs> sure. it's, it's it's the the gist of all marketing writ large is how do i get to a person who doesn't already know about my thing it's not really uh 
a solved problem. I don't think we have real answers to those questions. Uh, but I think what it comes down to is you, you're right. I did do a story almost three years ago about issues in esports around all of the revenue being indirect. Mm-hmm. You weren't seeing anyone. No, no one is paying for esports, right? Sponsorships and uh, all those like indirect revenue relationships with third parties, even the game developers paying for an esport out of their own pocket based on money they made on the game. That's all still indirect. I didn't pay you for your esport. I paid you for your game and you used that money to put, produce an esport. That's not a direct revenue stream. What you need is you need people buying, you know, broadcast rights, licensing rights. You need people buying merchandise, buying seats at stadiums. Those are direct relationships with teams and the esports themselves. And, and we're not there yet. Like there's not really a good answer to that. Um, and in the short term, they may not be because most of the successful and I'm going to like air quotes around successful. Most of the successful esports that exist are heavily, heavily regulated by their developers. It's very rare to see a game that is popular and doing well and has competing organizations and meaningful revenue cycles that isn't wholly owned by the game developer. And that that is one of the places where that relationship breaks down because the developer, unless the esport monetizes super well, they're not worried about getting people to pay for the esport. They want to sell more games, right? It's sure. it's like trying to, I don't know, you're you're looking at trying to get a a movie theater excited about selling the book that the movie is based on. Like it just doesn't fundamentally have anything to do with their source of revenue, so they don't worry about it. And that's a challenge that I think long term esports needs to overcome. Esports needs to have leagues and tournament operators and and major organizations, franchised leagues that don't actually belong to game developers because game developers don't have their best interests at heart. I think you're going to see that. I think you're going to see players get smart and unionize. I think you're going to see uh, probably the introduction of of real refereeing because i think that's one of the things that we don't really have a a good example of in gaming today we have the game has rules right the game has a fixed box in which people play so unlike in a football game where a human can punch another human when they're not supposed to you can't punch someone in a game if there's no punch button so why would you need a referee but i think we need to start and set the expectation down the road that how you engage with other players sportsmanlike conduct Those things actually do need to be accounted for. And then the marketing side of that, the how do we grow the audience for an esport part of it? Again, there's not really a clean answer. There's no direct line from A to B that anyone knows of, because if they did, we'd be doing it already. Yeah. So so what do you what do you do to get from A to B? And I think that's where, again, this is kind of why we need to distance esports from game developers a little bit. Game developers make games to be played. Games, games fundamentally are player centric. They're about the experience for the person behind the keyboard or the controller. They're not for the third party audience, right? It's very difficult to imagine building a game that is set up for a spectator first experience. It's never, it's never been done. Like it's just never been done. And you'll see all sorts of people make all sorts of claims about, well, look at how good the spectating tools are in Counter-Strike. Counter-Strike is a great example of a game that does have really powerful tools to watch other people play Counter-Strike. Mm-hmm. But the game was built for players. It was built to be played, not to be watched. That's that's the difference between 
a game and a movie, right? Like games don't have cinematography. That's just not, it's not how they work. But I think ultimately that's something that needs to be a consideration. Somebody needs to build a game that is laser focused from the outset on what's this going to look like to someone who doesn't play it? How are we going to make this watchable for someone who doesn't understand the game itself? And if you could build a game, right? Like fighting games are really good examples of this. All the information you need in a fighting game is on the screen. In a lot of complex 3D games, you need information about stuff you can't see. Stuff that's somewhere else on the map, something that's happening off screen behind the player's point of view in a, in a shooter. But in a fighting game, everything is visible. It's just on that one screen in front of you. That makes it way easier for a new viewer to understand what they're watching because they have all of the context. There's no mini map. There's no spatial awareness. There's no timing of some unit showing up that they can't see. It's just what I can see on the screen is what I get. Right. And that that's the closest thing we have to a spectator first experience. It's also why fighting games are so good at bringing in new communities of people. I, I wouldn't presume to speak for anyone but myself, but if you look at, the demographics in esports fighting games have a lot more diversity and a lot again maybe deserves some scare quotes around it because it's still understood esports and games are still heavily dominated by men but like there are more people of color participating in the fighting game community than there are in most any other esport that's a that's a big win for them because it means they have an audience that other games don't and deservedly so and maybe it's because they're more accessible maybe it's because those games don't get service updates and they don't need to be played on $3,000 gaming computers. Like there's lots of variables and most of those variables aren't being taken into consideration when it comes time to figure out how do we get our game watched by more people? Because that's not, that's not the place where any game developer starts. And it seems like one of the things that, you know, has maybe been, had gotten a little bit more traction is just sports games themselves, like Madden tournaments, you know, sometimes that'll get, crossover coverage with ESPN or I remember watching, you know, you're talking about games that are pretty complicated and stuff's off screen that they had, um, what heroes of the dorm. So heroes of the storm was on ESPN two, I think a year or so ago. And I remember flipping through channels and seeing it. I'm like, wow, this is totally a new world. And then more or less, I don't really understand the whole gist of it, but I guess like heroes of the storm really isn't doing competitive stuff in the future. So it just amazes me how, something that kind of booms then goes away. And I don't know. It seems like the wild West is kind of watching it from afar. It absolutely is. Here's the storm just announced, uh, this week, last week, very recently recent, that they were, yeah. Yeah, I think it was last week end of last week that they were discontinuing their tournament structure for 2019, that they weren't going to bring back Heroes of the dorm, which was televised and on ESPN. Yeah. Uh, th- those were, I think, Interesting cultural touch points. Having uh, a video game get played on ESPN was a big deal. Uh, Overwatch League was also played on ESPN, I think, for their finals this year. Okay. And those are those are uh, opportunities, right, to expand your audience, to get in front of new people. But again, the the reality of that is, unlike a sports game, if you get someone who watches the NFL to watch someone play Madden, they can put together what's happening because they understand the rules of the game. And they, they have the context to evaluate what they're seeing. It's not the same, but it's close enough that they, they get the parameters, right? Mm-hmm. That's not the case when you get into something like Overwatch, because 
unless you are an Overwatch player or maybe a player of another game that looks or feels like Overwatch, the first time you see it on TV, you, you have no concept of what you're seeing. You have no frame of reference. You just don't get it. And I think that's something that I don't even know. I don't even know how to really ascribe to uh, a video game where, where you would get that information from, where you would learn to understand that, because the concepts that come up in those games don't exist anywhere else. You're not learning about heads up displays and ultimate timers and mini maps when you watch a movie or read a book like they're they're experiences that are totally unique to playing a video game. I'm hopeful. I think that one of the places that the long tail of this ends is as television broadcasters realize that they need to be competitive with the the rest of the entertainment world and start to be more accessible online. They need to get away from hardline cable and set top boxes and physical televisions because the rest of the world has moved on without them. Right. Uh, like I, I believe that if there were a Netflix for esports or a Netflix for video games, that would be a, a phenomenal win because right now there's still no curation. Like if you want to try to follow an esport, you can follow a bunch of channels on Twitch, but you're not getting that curated experience the way that you would on ESPN. ESPN will do all the heavy lifting to help you. Here's the highlights from this week. Here's the, you know, game that's most relevant to you. Here's the schedule of upcoming games. Like they, they have the, the culture established for how to follow something. And we don't have that in gaming yet. And uh, people have tried, like it's been tried. People right. have made efforts to, put together calendars and apps and all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, how you engage with esports is still so fractured. So you, you use the wild West analogy and that's really, it's really apt. Like no one has the answers. Everyone's figuring it out. There are a bunch of big companies trying to get their share of that space, whether it's Amazon or Facebook or Google, like everybody's got a, a finger on the pulse of it because if it goes nuclear, if it just blows up one day, Everybody wants to have been there and, and gotten it while it was cheap and accessible. But those companies are also not doing anything to move the needle and advance this space. They're just waiting for it to have its boom or bust cycle independent of their effort. Well, and it seems like one thing that would be helpful is the almost like a feeder system, like an infrastructure. So for a sport like football, you have peewee football, you have high school football, college football, there's a draft, then you get into the professional league. And with esports, obviously a lot of children, young adults are playing games, playing games for entertainment. I don't know how organized there is of a competitive scene where people can just feed into that, even at a high school level. Like maybe some high schools have esports teams. I think there's probably a lot of resistance from older adults, teachers, folks who are like, well, that's we're not going to have an esports team because that's not a good use of time. I think there's probably still a lot of that bias out there. It seems like that would be helpful, though, to just have this culture of this is something that's accepted for people to do and to pursue. What are your thoughts about that, of just like starting kind of the whole society early on esports and that this is something that would be a, a tangible thing that kids could do that would sort of feed into these like bigger professional leagues. I think we're, uh, we're closer to that now than we've ever been. Uh, there, there are lots of, uh, colleges in certainly in the U S at least potentially in other markets as well, where there are 
programs that exist at the collegiate level for competition. There are scholarships like it is something that is beginning to be taken seriously, I think, in large part because the the post-secondary world is still cutthroat and competitive and they're trying to get you know, better students and more students. It's, it's, it's a byproduct of them needing to win over a demographic that is always going to be young and a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of what's, you know, culturally acceptable, what's, you know, possible with technology. They, they have to appeal to a young audience. And to do that, you do what is interesting to people that are, you know, 17 or whatever. And, and video games is a big part of that for a lot of kids now. It's, it, it wasn't that way when I was a child. Like I had access to video games as a kid and thought of it as very normal and was always playing games on my computer or a video game console only to discover that most of my peers were not. That was not a common experience. Today, I can't imagine that anyone has a household that doesn't have an Xbox, a PlayStation, an iPad, uh, a laptop. Like th- those things are so ubiquitous in a way that they absolutely weren't, you know, 20 and 30 years ago. So it is already more culturally acceptable. You already see parents who I think they, they still wrestle with it because they don't see a long-term future, but they do see the potential, right? They see kids who graduate high school and start playing games for a living and are suddenly they're doing okay. Like they're making a, a living wage. They're making a salary by playing a video game on Twitch or by competing in a video game league. Uh, I think fundamentally the problem is, is that it's still an entertainment based concept and, 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 or a sports league, right? Right. One, the other, or both. Every kid who dreamed of playing in the NHL doesn't make it one in a thousand makes it. Uh, every kid who dreamed of acting in Hollywood or singing in a band, like some of them recorded records, some of them toured for a little while while they were in school. But at the end of the day, one in thousands of those people actually ends up in the Foo Fighters or being the next Anna Kendrick. Like that's not an experience that everybody gets to have. And that's where gaming is going to be complicated forever. It's always going to be something that has more people interested in it than there are room for. So you're going to see, I think more parents who see it as okay, more schools that support it. It's, it's going to constantly evolve and change to match the expectations of a, a younger generation. Like parents now, people who are like yourself, have a two-year-old. Like your kids will grow up assuming that video games are totally normal and everywhere. They'll never think anything of oh, it. Yeah, he thinks right? everything's a touchscreen. Right. How yeah, can I, manip- like, how how I, can I manipulate this? What, what's going yeah. on? My all-time favorite YouTube video, total aside, is a, a kid who's trying to pinch and zoom on a magazine, right. and they rip, they rip the page and they start crying because they think they've broken it. Just that's that's the world we live in, right? right. I, I think I think esports is well positioned in that regard, but there is always going to be an accessibility problem. There are always going to be barriers to entry, and there's always going to be a wildly, wildly larger supply than there is demand for people to play video games at a professional level. Like only one person can be a ninja at any given time. And that that kid has an astonishing career. He's making an incredible amount of money and, and has cultural significance in a way that like I, I try to imagine who who had that kind of power over over a, a demographic that size when I was a kid. And I I can't. I can't even think of who who had that kind of reach, who had that kind of following like rock stars didn't have that kind of pull when I was a kid. It's crazy, but there can't be 10 of them. There can't be a hundred of them. There can only be him. There can only be one. So 
that's that's something that I think a lot of a lot of the you you commented earlier about Ben Fisher's story about the bubble in esports, and I think that's that's a part of where that comes from is all of these investors are like, cool, yeah, I want my piece of this billion dollar industry or whatever, and a it's not actually a billion dollar industry right now, and b there's only so many people who can own so much of it. If all these investors are throwing a couple of million dollars here and there at teams and organizations and leagues and broadcasts and players and influencers and all these things, sooner or later, there's no more eyeballs left to go around. There's no more audience left to justify that investment. And that's that's what a bubble is, right? The investment outweighs the return. That's that is a risk that I think we have to contend with, because at this point, Unless the audience grows, like we were talking about earlier, right. the market the market is saturated. There are as many – if you wanted to watch esports 24-7, 365, at this point, you could. So there's not a whole lot of room left to go up unless we expand the whole industry, unless we make it something that is easier for new people to join, more accessible, more uh, watchable for non-gamers – uh, more palatable to the demographics that aren't already being courted. Like that's where growth will happen. And today now, I don't think that's a priority for a lot of the people who are sort of the core premier endemic players in the industry. Yeah. Wow. It's it's going to be fascinating to see where it goes. One of the things I wanted to chat with you about, because you got to see and experience this, you know, working for Blizzard, one of the big you know titans in this field. What was it like to what was the process of like getting hired by them and then your year working for them? Sort of what were your responsibilities there? Uh, so I worked on the, the esports publishing team. So there was a group of us who were responsible for, uh, you know, media, press releases, public relations, uh, all, all of the, the publishing responsibilities, uh, community management, all that kind of stuff for Blizzard's esports any of the competitive scenes or leagues that existed around any of their games uh i got there by way of just being uh well equipped with the skill set i was a, a strong writer a strong editor and i knew their games and their esports very well uh that was really uh again I, I talked earlier when we started about the sort of organic snowballing that happened in my career yeah uh i followed the games really closely i was doing podcasts about some of them as you mentioned I got asked to be one of their commentators. I was a part of the talent team and worked on broadcasts of their esports as a as a announcer for a period of time. All of those things got me exposure to the company, to the people who worked there, and they saw what I was capable of. So I ended up with a job. It wasn't even the job I applied for, actually. <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, seeing it from the other side, it was very interesting just to to get a a glimpse behind the curtain because I think everybody imagines that you see a finished product, right? Whether it's a game or a movie or a book or whatever. And, and all you see is the, the best possible version of it because you're getting the most polished, most complete experience that was possible. You don't see the, the crazy pants on fire, people running around <laughs> with their sure. Just, it's an insane amount of work to make these things happen, right? Because you've got people who are worrying about, licensing and tournament administration and setting up a broadcast and and like it takes dozens of people in real time with cameras and and all sorts of tech that you just wouldn't even believe to to make these things happen uh honestly i think it's something that i wish i wish more people could see like i wish that the way that people get a behind the scenes glimpse at you know what what's it look like when 
Ryan Reynolds is pretending to be Deadpool. Like how many takes did that take? How hard was that? How many people were involved in pulling that off? No one really has a good sense of that scale in esports because people just don't see it. All they see is player gets up on stage, plugs in his preferred mouse, plays a game for 20 minutes, wins, takes home a hundred thousand dollars. And the, and the enormous array of people who exist in the, the, like there's a, there's an entire set of people that most of the people following esports probably don't even know exist. Like they just can't imagine the the concept of all of the the layers of administration and tech that are required to just orbit that. Uh, I, I, one of my favorite examples, something that comes up all the time in esports, okay. is getting players paid. Because you would think like player shows up, they compete in a tournament, they come in seventeenth, their prize is five thousand dollars. But those players come from hundreds of countries all over the world, and it takes an enormous amount of work across teams of lawyers and accountants and the people who have to maintain contact with all those people and someone who has to speak the language right, for each yeah. of those regions to just just to do that. Like you need people who can speak dozens of languages. You need lawyers who can interpret law in dozens of languages. You need accountants who can make sure that payments are being received correctly in nations that you, you can't spell like that's an incredible amount of work, and that's just to get a player paid. That didn't cover the travel and hospitality to get them to the tournament. It didn't cover all of the requirements physically at that tournament. It didn't cover a broadcast. It didn't cover anything, right? Like, and that's I think that's something that maybe maybe it takes a little bit of the like sexiness away from it to see all of that. It takes some of the cachet away to know that it is just this big machine made of cogs that are people trying to do their individual jobs. You don't see that when you watch an NFL game. You just see, ah, cool, the Chargers win. Like it's, you don't get invested in all of the administrative minutia. But I think people would have a better appreciation for how amazing this is if they saw more of that. Yeah, and it reminds me of the Lord of the Rings films, which I love. They're awesome. I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm going to come back. I promise. So, like, I enjoyed those movies. Really liked them. I loved the books growing up. And then they released the special edition DVD set. Yeah, it was before Blu-ray. So the special edition DVD set, and they had this making of the Fellowship of the Ring that was over four, two or four discs. It was eight to ten hours of content. And it just dove into the minutia of how did these movies get made? How did they work on the script? How did they find locations? They interviewed this one guy who had literally burnt his fingerprints off from making chain mail for like a year and a half of his life. <laughs> and he was so happy to be working on the movie. It's just, it's, if you've never seen these videos, it's amazing. But that type of detail, watching those videos, watching the care and dedication and talent that went into bringing those movies to life. Like I like those movies anyway. I love those movies now. And in 2012, we went to New Zealand cause we just were so enamored with the behind the scenes stuff. So I think you're right. I think something like that, where it does pull the curtain back a little bit, even if it was a half hour long documentary or an hour long of here's how we created this card set or here's how this event was put on. Here's all the different players that came together to make this a reality. It sort of gives you some ownership, some knowledge of, oh, OK, I get it. I because this is this esports thing or this competitive gaming. It seems very nebulous. I, I don't quite know how to get my hand around it. And making it a little less abstract, I think, would 
it would certainly make me more interested. I'd love to watch something like that, like you're describing of how does this all come together? I don't know. What do you think? I think I think it's uh, it's the pipe dream of letting people see all of the the individual contributors who work on something. Yeah. Uh, in, in most industries, that's just not how things work out, right? Like it, it is cool. Uh, I've watched some of the behind the scenes stuff on a handful of like movies, Lord of the Rings, the the crazy things that they were able to do were great. I really loved. There was a similar one I watched about Game of Thrones and how they tried to like create digital backdrops but all the things you saw in the foreground were real which meant they had to travel to hundreds of locations all over the world to get that one spot where the hill was the just the right angle for the scene that they had you know storyboarded right it's an incredible amount of work and it's crazy that there are you know all these people doing all these things using skills you don't even know exist to try and figure those things out um but at the end of the day the challenge i think is that you also need to see a return on that time and money sure Lord of the Rings made a whole pile of money so they could afford to do that. Esports right now, uh, for most, and I'm, I'm generalizing a little here, but for most games and for most leagues is not a profitable thing. Like most of the things that you watch, if you watch an esport are being done at the expense of the sponsors and the people who are supporting them. Game developers spend money to put those shows on that they don't make back. And, and I guess some of that comes down to how you want to look at you know, how, how many of their paying customers wouldn't be paying customers if there was no eSport? How many people would uh, use the lack of an eSport as an exit point and stop subscribing to a game? Like, it's it's tough to do uh, an ROI calculation on those things. Uh, and that's kind of an old way of thinking anyway, of, of imagining that eSports are just a, a marketing tool, not something that should stand on their own two feet. But assuming for the moment that you do believe that the eSport is its own discrete experience, separate from the game that it was being uh, built on top of none of them are making money like they're all just living on the the goodwill of sponsorships and indirect revenues and that's something that i think has to be overcome before there's really going to be a way for any any like fundamental success to occur as far as something like showing people more of behind the scenes showing them the struggles of the players who make it and the players who don't talking to People who become broadcast talent and, and where that skill set came from, how hard they had to fight to find their place in the world. Like those are those are incredible stories that deserve to be told and heard, but it's going to take a long time to get there. Well, it sounds like that's one of the projects you're working on now is writing about that, about where it is. What's next of how, how do they start making money? Like, how do they get people to pay attention to this and this just never ending sea of content that is out there, both visually podcast. I mean, there's so many different ways to spend slash waste your time. How, how do you lock in people for esports? What do you think needs to happen? I think we have to do a better job of making the experiences more digestible. Uh, and what I mean by that is, a hockey game is 60 minutes of play. Granted, it maybe takes two hours to watch, but it's 60 minutes of play. Lots of people who are hockey fans don't even have those 60 minutes. They just I'm see the... Them, yeah. Right, yeah. Like, you follow the scores online, you follow a team, <laughs> you keep track of them a little bit, you maybe tune in briefly to see kind of what is going on. You see the, the highlights, the top 15 plays of the week on ESPN. Esports right now, because everything is so driven by... Maximize the size of the audience, get as many people on your Twitch stream as possible. Uh, all of all of what happens has to be justified because they're all cost centers, not revenue generating products that are profitable. 
you need to get to a place where there is a a higher degree of consumer confidence, more people who are just like doing well in the spaces that they are in. And the byproduct of that, the ultimate end goal, I think, is to get to a place where if some of the esports aren't quite as developer driven, if they're not owned by the companies who make the games, you maybe get to a place where it's more possible to have, uh, you know, a genre that's covered all as one, right? Like imagine that you could tune in for 20 minutes to the highlights of the week from the fighting game community. There are people who have tried to do this. I'm not trying to speak ill of any of the folks who are out there like grinding away, trying to put together those shows, make those podcasts. It's just still so difficult to follow because there's no coherent source of truth. There's no one network that really does this expertly. And esports will get there like one day, you know, Monday night football on ABC will be Monday night uh, MOBAs on (laughs) pick a network, right? Like we're going to get there. We really are. But you have to level up what that experience looks like. You have to get it to a place that's marketable to a larger audience. You have to make it easier to follow. You have to make it more watchable for folks who are trying to understand and want to understand, but are being gatekept by the community and the complexity of the game that they're watching. We are so close, so close to a lot of those things, but until someone makes them a priority, you're going to continue to see, I think, the same challenges arise where you can't grow your audience. And if you can't grow your audience, you don't have the revenue, which justifies more behind the scenes experiences, more cross game, cross franchise, cross genre experiences. No one is in a position to stand up a full time esports specific network on a cable company. Uh, and, and they the ones that are invested are, again, really just laser focused on what's the best return on our time. You see like. Uh, ESPN showcasing Heroes of the Storm. You see Turner, Turner Broadcasting doing E-League. That's just for a very specific set of games. Nobody has really gotten to a place where they're ready to do everything. And I don't know what that will take. I don't know who will ever be in a position to actually execute that. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that it's something that's impossible. I don't think that there isn't a future where that exists. It will just take time it will take time to get to a place where those resources are available online for people to learn about a game to easily follow a sport that's that's maybe a a five-year thing not a 20-year thing and not certainly not an impossibility but there's a lot of extra legwork that goes into making those experiences coherent keeping those schedules consistent like you can look up when the next super bowl will be and and that's done like it's been done for a long time you can look up how how many years in advance are the Olympics planned? Twelve. Like people people think so far ahead in traditional sports and traditional broadcasting. The the Oscars are coming up here shortly, and next year's Oscars have already been planned. Like that's the level of of proactive thinking that's required to make these kinds of experiences possible. And most of the game development companies are just not there, which means the esports aren't there. Like they're they're just barely today now. Like. Okay, guys, 2018 is over in a week and a half. What are we doing in 2019? Right. Like nobody nobody is really thinking that far ahead because they're not being given the latitude to do it because the infrastructure isn't cemented enough to make that possible. And you're I mean, going back to something we were talking about a little while ago, everything is beholden to the people, the developers creating the game. So, you know, the the rules or the parameters of a game could change. It'd almost be like in a football game in the middle of the third quarter, they decide, well, you know what? what? You can no longer throw a forward pass. Like, that's just not allowed. 
Like it's, it seems like that kind of stuff happens. And you're talking about what needs to happen. I, I imagine the first line of code for the game that's going to be the one that people can sort of rally around and understand from a, a viewership point of view that maybe makes more mainstream uh, acceptance maybe hasn't even been written yet. And maybe that game comes out another three, four, five, ten years. Maybe it's sooner. I, I don't know. But it's just it's fascinating to think about. You know, the other thing I think that would be useful, and I know they've started to do this, is where they have these regional teams and they're attached to cities. And I think building up personalities, identities, rivalries, all that stuff that a normal sport has. I mean, I've just seen it with uh, – Major League Soccer, because I used to live in Houston. Now I live in the Twin Cities. And that was such an event. Like, they built a stadium. The jerseys were everywhere. And obviously, soccer, football is this huge international sport. Well, so is esports. I mean, people from all over the world are playing this. These games are popular. Building that type of infrastructure where you can identify with a local team and local personalities and players, where there's some stability to the whole idea it seems like that's warranted. Like I don't have a sense of how much stability there is with teams, with rosters, with even the games that are being competed. Like what, what have you seen from that standpoint? The, the thing I think to take away on that note is that we've come a long way, right? Like if you go back three to five years to when I sort of got my, my start in this industry, there were no teams that were geographically based. Uh, Teams would just pack up and go wherever uh, they weren't worried about having a, a home. There was no franchising to speak of. And the franchising that's happening now is, uh, again, it's still mostly being done by wholly owned leagues that are that are beholden to a game developer. Players aren't unionized. Like there's lots of drawbacks to them, but it's a huge step forward like that. None of that existed years ago. You've seen the start of efforts to sell broadcast rights, which is for traditional sports and for the Olympics and for all of those experiences that the majority, like greater than 50% majority of their revenue streams. There's, there's definitely victories that have happened in the last five years. Uh, it just needs to go further. You know, you, you talk about the experience of standing up a stadium, like what would that actually look like for an esport? And, and further, like, how do you distinguish that experience from what would happen if you were sitting at home? Because right. one of the fundamental differences between a traditional sport and an esport is that if you watch a stream of a video game, and then you go watch someone play that game in person, you're still watching a screen. Whereas the difference between sitting at home watching a hockey game and going to a hockey game is now you're watching it in the flesh. You're seeing it in real life. Um, video games can never do that. We can never have that experience. And even if you could, it would be like VR, which, again, you could do from the comfort of your own living room. So people, I think, have to give a lot of thought in the future as esports continues to grow to what is the live experience and how is it meaningfully distinct from the at home on my couch experience? Because distinguishing those in a meaningful sense is going to be a big part of how you convince people that this is a real thing and that they want a local stadium and a local team and to go physically see them play. That's not, we're not there yet. Like that's not something that I think any game has solved for any esport has solved for the, Companies that are putting together the broadcasts have leveled up so much and done so much work to make the broadcast experience amazing, but the in-person experience, the live experience, isn't distinct enough yet. Right. And, and like, I'm I'm 100% confident that many companies are working on that. You can see little examples of like, go back and watch uh, the Dota 2 International, their big tournament tournament from like years ago, and then watch 
a current one that was done in the last year or two and look at the craziness that they're doing with like augmented reality broadcast desks and the big like stadium bowls that they have at some of these events where the players can face off against each other. Like there's lots of things that have improved, but there's also going to, I think, be more improvements required before we actually get to a place where that that in-person experience is saleable. (laughs) And that's something that matters a lot. How that translates into, uh, you know, the future of player unions or the future of franchising external from a game developer. Like there's lots of unanswered questions, but I can see those things happening. I can see a future where uh, a company that really knows what they're doing is able to basically convince a game developer to give them total control. And I can see a future where. Uh, particularly as games stop being actively developed on, right? We talked a lot about games as a service and how, Mm -hmm. you know, they change so fast and so frequently. A game that isn't changing anymore or is changing a lot less is way lower risk for a third-party company to take on and and run an eSport for it. You don't want to be responsible for a game where your tournament is scheduled to start tomorrow and today you find out that they're removing a character from the game. Like, that's a scary, scary thing and a big risk to your broadcast and all the time that you've spent putting together this tournament and this event, but a game that's not being actively developed on. And again, I'll point to uh, console based fighting games are great for this because the ones that predate modern consoles that can't be patched, they're not changing and it makes it way easier for a third party company to do something, to create a tournament, to engage with them. That's an opportunity that we don't have with current titles, but that opportunity may come like that might be a thing that begins to be, more realistic in the future. Uh, and I think, I think you will see some of the game companies themselves too start to think about maybe we should change our game less. Maybe we should have the game stay more consistent for longer periods of time because the draw there is, is that a, you could spend less developer time and money on an, on an updates to an existing title and B, you can actually let it be focused on as an esport Cause right now, most of those games as a service games They've got to add a new character that they can sell for six bucks a pop, or they got to put 12 new skins in right. loot boxes, right? Like that's, that's the monetization vector on an ongoing basis for the game. If that weren't a requirement, if the game didn't need that extra revenue, maybe that opens the door for the esport to be the focus, not additional microtransaction based revenue from the game. That's, that's a big ask because the way that games are sold, the volume of games that are free to play at the outset now, like, the industry has shifted in a direction that makes doing that harder. Yeah. But someone somewhere is going to decide that their esport is the priority. Their spectator experience is the priority. They want a meaningfully distinct live entertainment experience and that that's a priority. And that I think that opens doors to try something new that hasn't been done before. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I I'm so curious to see where it goes, like what type of people get involved how how games develop over the years. I think the this idea you're talking about again is games as a service is such a just from a psychological background. I mean that's my work as a psychologist. Our relationship with media in general has changed so much over the last ten years. Uh, you mentioned music. I used to love buying CDs and collecting them. I don't know anyone that buys CDs these days. I think several people buy records, LPs, albums, and as kind of collectors. But everybody rents things now. You just kind of rent experiences. And I think about it with Hearthstone, where I've been playing daily for, I don't know, going on three years. And 
you know, it's unlikely, but Hearthstone could go away someday. And I have more or less nothing tangible to show for it. And as someone, just as a quasi-competitive casual player, that's a little scary. I, I imagine these people who are devoting 8, 10 hours a day to training and playing these games where kind of the rug could be pulled out from, from under them, that's, that's pretty daunting. So I, I like the idea of more stability, but I think it gets to, well, what, who's paying for all this? Like, and who's paying you? I think you use the word saleable. So what, what can they sell? Can they sell tickets? Can they sell merchandise? Can they sell uh, online tickets? You know, you have to pay $2 to watch this event. I don't know. How does that happen? How does it come apart about? It sounds like everyone's still trying to, to square that circle. Yeah, and, and they will be for a while. I think ultimately uh, the music comparison is really apropos because I think that's probably the most uh, likely outcome is that you'll see somebody who is able to curate a really, really clean, competitive esports experience, mm-hmm. and they'll do a, a Netflix, Spotify subscription-esque model where you can pay a fixed fee to have access to this really great content. And that that's why those services work, right? Like I pay... X dollars a month for uh, a YouTube subscription or a uh, Spotify subscription or a Hulu subscription or take your pick of one of these things because it makes the process of engaging with content incredibly simple. I get what I want, high def, curated, available on all my devices. Uh, that's that's something that esports has traditionally struggled with because there is no curation. It's not being well maintained like uh I imagine if you wanted to go back, for example, and watch like a really great uh, previous Super Bowl, you want to go back and watch the Super Bowl from 2013, like that footage exists, you can go find it. It's not easy, but it can be done. Uh, Try to go back and find the footage from a 2013 esport finale. And (laughs) best case scenario, someone has uploaded it to YouTube in a a quality, maybe not a good quality, but it's not like you can just log in. Uh, esports flicks, right? And click on the game you like and click on the history and go back and find it. That's something that, uh, I think there, there is a future where that's an experience yeah. that someone is probably willing to pay for. And that, that's really the, the unanswered question there is esports fans up to this point have been very young. They're, they're mostly sub 30 on average. That means they are in the, uh, lowest disposable income age bracket which makes it very difficult to convince them to pay for anything, much less something that they are conditioned to experience and get for free. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see, right? As that, as that cohort ages, as people who are in their thirties and forties become a larger part of the esport following population, which maybe that's sustainable. Maybe it's not, we don't know. We don't know if that will be something that is palatable to that age demographic, because right now it's, it's not been done. It's, there's, there's no, history to test against. Uh, I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to be something where, and you see evidence of this, like parents taking their kids to overwatch league games or whatever, like it's, it's happening, but you need the, the just raw passage of time. You need yeah. 10 more years of this being a real thing to build more, more audience, more stability, m- more of a, of a predictable future that allows companies to look around see the possibilities, monetize, make plans, build infrastructure, and eventually charge money. And that's the that's the long tail here is somebody has to be able to actually charge people to be a part of an online esport experience. And we're not we're just not there. Yeah. And I realize the time I speak to one of the things I had written down here, but I don't think we'll get too much time to go into it. But the whole aspect of gambling, 
on esports. You know, gambling on football and other sports is such a big deal. And, you know, I have another friend who works out in Atlantic City and, you know, they're trying to figure out how can the casinos get involved with esports, either putting on events or opening up sports books where people can bet on these things. It seems like that's a whole nother element of this that has to be figured out, uh, which, again, is fascinating. It's it's such an interesting time. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, nobody has those answers. There are states where sports betting isn't legal. There are countries where sports betting isn't legal. Esports has a long and sordid history yeah. with gambling. Um, match fixing in esports is very uh, I don't want to say common, but it's it's difficult to detect. So it's been tried in some fairly high profile scenarios. There are world champion caliber players of some games who have had their names functionally erased from the history books because it was determined that they were throwing games to take large payments from people who were trying to cook the books for betting purposes. Like it's it's wow. a scary reality. Yeah. Um, but it's it's something that we have to solve for. Like you have to get to a place where you can trust that. And again, I I hate to say it, but that's largely a money problem. Like the fact that a pro gamer is willing to throw a high profile match because someone will pay them 30 or $40,000. If you're a, you know, an NFL player making 30 million a year, you're just going to laugh at that offer because your salary and your integrity isn't, isn't for sale for a, a, tiny little lump of money like that but in gaming that's someone's annual salary and that's a a tough i can't imagine being put in that position i can't imagine someone coming to me and saying i will give you a year's worth of what you would make doing your job to lose this game make it look good but lose i can't i can't imagine being put in that position uh and the players who have been put in that position the ones who have walked away have an incredible amount of personal fortitude and the ones who haven't it's hard to blame them yeah, and like I, I, there needs to be a, a better business model overall, and it, that sounds like what you're writing about, what you're working on, what everyone's trying to figure out. Kevin, I just thoroughly appreciate your time. It's wonderful to actually get a chance to talk with you after hearing you on my commutes and other things in recent years. If people wanted to reach out, if they wanted to ask you some questions about the stuff you're working on or have questions about esports or other topics, how, how can they find you? Uh, today now, best bet is probably to look me up on social media. Uh, now that I'm no longer working for Blizzard, I kind of have a little more freedom to engage. I'm going to go back to writing. I'm hopefully actually, uh, going to go back to doing some podcasting. Uh, you'll, you'll see me in the world again, uh, talking about esports, talking about gaming, uh, lack of realism. All one word is my Twitter handle. Uh, it's a quote from an old movie, uh, bonus points if you can guess which. And yeah, it would be great to hear from people who want to know more uh, about the crazy world that is competitive gaming and kids making millions of dollars doing it. Yeah, and I think it's like you see these high profile stories of people making a lot of money doing this. And you can you touched on some of the misconceptions before that this is it's like, oh, well, you're playing games and you're making millions of dollars that it's not that easy. And it's not that many people who can who can pull that off. Yeah, and and there will be more, and the stories will be even wilder in the years to come. I promise you that. Uh, stay tuned. You're going to see some crazy stuff. <laughs> well, we'll end on that note. Thank you very much for your time. I hope you have a great uh, rest of the year. Yeah, thanks, Michael, and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Yeah, it's been fun. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.